0: Ephesians chapter 4, and as we get started, I want to read for us our text for today, which is the first six verses. Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you recall to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word now, I, I pray that you would... Accomplish your purpose through it. The Bible tells us that when your word is preached, it does not return empty, but it does accomplish the purpose for which you send it. And I pray today that that would be the case for each one of us. That your spirit would come and accomplish in our hearts that which needs to be done. As we are confronted with the truth of your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the questions that we like to ask around here when we're talking about and studying Scripture is the simple question, so what? We've asked this a number of times over the the, the previous few months as we've studied a text. And we ask the question, so what? What do we do with the things that we're learning? Okay, I I get what God is saying. So what? What does it mean for me? We've kind of come to that point in the book of Ephesians. We've, We've made it through the first three chapters. And our text for today begins to answer this question for us. As we consider what we've already studied and learned earlier in the book, now we come to the point, so what? What do we do with all of that? understanding? What do we do with all of that theology that we've just seen Paul write about in Ephesians chapter 1 through 3? You see, at this point in his letter, Paul shifts from primarily laying out theological truth and explanation and shifts now to exhortation and practical instruction to the Ephesian Christians. And, of course, this pattern itself is instructive for us. Before we can properly understand and obey the instructions, the commands that God places on us, we have to understand what God has already done. Some have said before we can obey the gospel imperatives, the commands, we have to know and understand the gospel indicatives. In order to obey God. We have to understand what he's done. Now Paul. Has followed this pattern before in his writing. Most notably. The book of Romans. Where he spends 11 chapters. chapters—very mo- Most of those well-known chapters. Many, many famous. And well-known verses. In those first 11 chapters of Romans. About. Our condition as sinners, the amazing grace of God to come and save us while we are still sinners. And then when he comes to the beginning of chapter 12, Paul calls these Christians to present their bodies as a living sacrifice to God. And in fact, in the book of Romans, he uses the very same wording, the very same phrase that he does here in the book of Ephesians when he makes that shift. From laying out this grand portrait of God's grace. He does that in Romans and he's done that in Ephesians. We've seen the absolute majesty of God's working on our behalf and in our lives. That culminated in our text last week. This doxology to God. And now Paul shifts. He did it in Romans 12 and he does it here in Ephesians 4. He says, I therefore urge you, and it's clear by the use of the word therefore, that what he is now beginning to say, he intends for us to remember what he has already said. The things that he's going to exhort us to now flows out of and is based on what he has already laid out for us in the previous three chapters. I want us to take a moment. To consider this, this word this word urge. This is what Paul. Is communicating to his readers. He is urging them to do something. This word has been translated into English. With words such as. Beseech. Beg. Entreat. I think some of these words. Strip this word of its, author, of its authoritative sense. We might get the impression that Paul is is here begging his readers to do what he is encouraging them to do. It's almost as if Paul is just kind of sitting back after laying out this theology, just hoping that these people will obey. But the word used here has a much more authoritative sense. This is Paul the apostle, one who has been commissioned by God to speak on God's behalf authoritatively. And so we must feel the weight of this exhortation. As we come to this point in the book of Ephesians, we can't sit back and and be tempted to think that we can just take or leave what Paul is writing here and really ultimately what God is communicating through Paul. We don't have that option. What follows in not only this text, but really in the rest of this book is not just... Optional instructions for us. These are our commands, imperatives, exhortations that are God's intention for His people. God intends that His people obey these commands. These, the, this is what God's people do. There is no, we don't have a choice in the matter. Whether or not to obey God or not, God demands our obedience. In light of the riches of his grace on our behalf God demands our our response to be one of obedience to him and this exhortation that we find begun here in chapter 4 is simply the specific way in which we go about responding to that which has been explained in chapters 1 through 3 you see this helps us understand what the calling is That Paul describes in verse 1. As the calling to which you have been called. And I think this is the real value of. Having worked our way systematically through this book. To this point. You see if we were just to. Come down into chapter 4. We might not have. The complete picture of what this calling is. To which God has called us. You see we have seeing that not only has God worked in our lives individually, we saw that in chapter 2, God has rescued individual sinners who were dead in their sins. He's made us alive. We now walk in newness of life, in those works that He has prepared for us. So not only has God worked in our lives individually, not only is that now our calling, to walk in those good works, but also we've seen from chapter 3 that there's, something more broad than just our own experience. You see, God is gathering together millions and millions of individual sinners and bringing them into one body for His glory that we as a church, local church, universal church, would be to the praise of His glory. And so we come to chapter 4 and verse 1, and we see... This calling that God has called us to, we understand it to be not only the good works that he has prepared for us to walk in. But we see that we are part of God's purpose in all of creation, in all of the world, to make his name known. That others would observe us, our church, and the universal church at large, and praise God for the demonstration of his grace. This is the calling to which we have been called. We have been called to reflect the glory of God in salvation as those who have been changed by it and have received it. We are called to live as those who have been freed from the bondage of our sin. We've been called to live that way. We've also been called to live as those that have been united together in Christ. But this leads us to ask another question. If that's our calling, if our calling is really to live out what God has done in chapters 1 through 3 for his people. What does Paul mean when he says that the command for us is to walk worthy of that calling? The word here translated to walk in a manner worthy of carries the image of balancing out a scale. You see, in order for a a scale to balance out, both sides have to weigh the same, right? I think that's pretty basic science. I think we all understand that. Both sides have to be the same weight in order for that scale to balance out. And taking that imagery and bringing it into our experience, I think, will help us understand this idea that Paul is describing. This exhortation to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. Now, before I get too much into it, I want to clarify that sometimes this imagery of a scale is used to depict salvation. So what I'm not saying here is that we merit God's favor by balancing out the scales. This is is not how we earn our salvation. This this is how we live following our salvation. To walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called is to walk in a manner worthy that balances out the scales between God's work for us and the way that we work for Him. Let's go back to Romans chapter 12, verse 1, a verse I alluded to earlier. Paul makes this similar transition. This is what he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. In this verse, Paul defines obedience to his exhortation as spiritual worship. And I think this is especially good for us to understand when we've just come out of the end of chapter 3 where there is a statement of dramatic praise, God. Okay, now how do we take the praise of our lips and live that out? A life of praise toward God. You see, by our obedience, we are living out with our lives the worship that we speak with our lips. So we've seen in chapters 1 through 3 the massive weight on God's side of that scale right? I mean, it's it's infinitely massive. So in one sense, there's no way that anything we do will ever balance that out. So that's where this, this imagery falls apart a little bit. But imagine that you had the ability, the resources to give someone a sum of money to help them, maybe during a time of need. So you you provide this money so that they can maybe provide their, the basic necessities for their family. Food, housing, etc. Now imagine that you did this. What would your expectation be from that person? How would you expect him to use that money? You would expect him to use that money you know, a wise way. You, you, would, you would be offended and hurt if they went and wasted that money on things that did not provide for their basic necessities of their family. If he took that money and spent it on foolish and unnecessary things, you would be upset that that money did not go toward what you intended it to go toward. In other words, his use of that money did not measure up to the expectations you had when you you gave him that money or loaned him that money. You see, for someone who has been saved by the grace of God, for someone that has received the abundance of God's grace, to then turn and continue to walk according to their own way is a complete disregard of God's demands on their life and and in, in a sense a slap in the face of God and His grace. I think beyond that there are certainly questions of the legitimacy of that that person's salvation. If they are choosing to continue to walk their own way with no regard for the, the demands that God places on us. You see, when God saves a person, He equips and empowers us to obey and follow Him. So having laid out what this ex, uh, this exhortation is in verse one, we can we can begin to look a little more specifically at what Paul has in mind about the way that we live. Before we look at each one in detail or or somewhat in detail, I want us to note that all of these qualities that Paul lists as behaviors that are are worthy of the calling to which we have been called. This is This is what Paul means when he talks about walking in a manner worthy. It's doing these or exhibiting these qualities, following after this pattern of godliness. And I want to note that these are things that our Lord himself demonstrated and lived out in his life. And we now have the ability to follow after him and obey the pattern that he has set for us. These are the things that God expects of His people. These are the, the things that He enables us to do as His children. First, we see that we walk in a manner worthy of our calling by living a life of humility. Now, humility is defined, well, it could be defined in a few different senses. One is, is simply having a proper understanding of who we are, having God's perspective on who we are, we who have a tendency to have a wrong perspective of, of our, ourselves, we, we have a tendency, a strong tendency to think more highly of ourselves than we really are. So really, humility, more than anything else, is simply having God's perspective of us, recognizing our our true condition before God. Paul's certainly done a good job in the first three chapters of Ephesians of reminding us of our former condition and how we are utterly dependent on God's grace for anything. We are outside of him nothing. Then also, not only is humility viewing ourselves from God's perspective, but humility is also thinking more highly of others than we do ourselves. Thinking of the good of others, the benefit of others over our own benefit. Living and speaking in a way that elevates others' interests higher than our own. See, true humility is a quality that originated with Jesus and is most clearly demonstrated by. His incarnation is described in Philippians chapter 2 where Paul wrote and exhorted the Philippians to have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus who although he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on the, on the cross. And so we as. Christians. As Christ followers. Who now. Have the imputed righteousness of Christ. We are now able. To live the way Jesus lived. He not only is our example. To look at and follow. He is the one that enables us to. Lower ourselves. For the benefit of others. You see it costs Jesus. His life. To benefit us in salvation. Jesus gave up. A measure of his relationship with God for a time. To take on human flesh. To live a life of perfect obedience for us. And then to die in our place. To save us from our sins. And now God calls us as his people. To demonstrate that same humility. Stop thinking so highly of ourselves and think more of how we can use the gifts that God has given us to benefit others. This is how unity takes place. This is how ongoing unity happens. We know from chapter 3 that God has united us through the cross. But we also know that we do a lot of things that break up that unity. We, we, do a, we do a lot of things toward other people that breaks that, that relationship between us and them, that God has created by the cross. One of the most common enemies of unity is pride. Everyone seeking their own advancement, their own agenda. That's probably the quickest way to kill unity, really in any group, but certainly within the body of Christ is for everyone in this room to be seeking their own benefit, their own goals. It just destroys unity. Leads to constant conflict and disagreement. I think it's interesting that this word translated in this verse as humility was was a word that was not really known prior to this time. This this was not This was certainly not a concept that was celebrated. People don't celebrate humility, generally speaking. Usually humility just means that you're weak and passive. But instead we know that humility is a work that Jesus Christ does in and through us. He himself demonstrated it above all. And now we... Can demonstrate this high quality. This this is a noble quality. Demonstrated by Jesus. Thinking of ourselves. The way God knows us to be. And then giving our lives to serve others. To place others interests before our own. It's the first way we. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called is by living a life of humility. Secondly, we live a life of gentleness. This word has been defined as that point between excessive anger against everyone for on all occasions and never being angry with anything. That's a big gap in there, I realise. Certainly, both of those extremes are not pleasing to God. Maybe the best illustration of of what godly gentleness is, is is the imagery of of a dog. Now, I'm not a pet guy, but I've heard dogs described as as being many dogs being fiercely loyal. They'll, they'll be they'll be angry at their owner's enemies. And yet, never angry at their owner's friends. And that similar concept carries into the church. Where we, anger is not, in and of itself, sinful. Jesus himself demonstrated anger at God's enemies. At his own enemies. Yet, never demonstrated anger toward the wrong person or in the wrong way some view gentleness or could be translated meekness as as a another weak character trait but in fact we know from the bible that when it speaks of meekness and gentleness it these are these are qualities of strength i think some have defined it as strength under control we we understand how to use our strength that god has given us in a way that honors Him and benefits others. Instead of using our strength as a means to knock others down and exercise our own authority over others, we use our strength not for our own ends, but for the benefit of others and for the glory of God. It ties together nicely with the quality of humility. Humility and gentleness go hand in hand. Jesus himself, as well as Moses, are described in the Bible as being meek and gentle. Yet we know from Scripture that both of those men demonstrated strength when necessary and in a godly way. Thirdly, we demonstrate or we we live in a, a manner worthy of our calling. By demonstrating patience. Another word we could use here is long-suffering. We obey the calling that God has called us to. We cultivate this unity that God has called us to promote. By living toward others with patience. This word is often used to describe God and his withholding that which sinners deserve. You see, God's patience toward us caused him to withhold from us the punishment that we deserve. It's that same patience that even right now withholds punishment that you deserve if you're still outside of Christ today. This was the means by which God has rescued and gathered the church. He has demonstrated long-suffering and patience toward us. Giving us time to be led and called by the Spirit to be gathered into this church. The implication of this exhortation for us is that there will be those Times within the body that this patience is tested. There's going to be times where there, there will be others that treat us in a way that requires us to demonstrate patience toward them and long suffering. But again, if God can be and was and is long-suffering toward us. And by the power of the Spirit working in us, He gives us the ability to be patient with others. And this leads us to the next one. How do we exercise patience toward others? We do so by bearing with one another in love. This is how we properly demonstrate patience toward others within the body. We we bear with one another in love. You see it makes sense that if God is bringing together people from every ethnicity and every socioeconomic background, every walk of life that there's going that, that Though we have been united, we bring in differences. We are a diverse group of people. And there's going to be times when those differences begin to affect the way that we live together. So what do we do when that happens? What do we do when we begin to butt heads with someone else over a certain viewpoint we might have? Or a certain life experience that We don't necessarily don't necessarily share with each other. And that difference leads to struggle interpersonal struggle. What do we do? Well, God commands that we. Bear with one another. This idea of. Bearing with each other. While easy to talk about in practices. Is. Often hard to do because we're not often humble the way we should be. We don't often exercise patience the way that we should. And yet we are called to bear with one another. Allow the other person to be right. Allow them to exercise their differences and trust that that God is able to continue to cultivate that relationship allowing God to break down that wall that might come up between us as we as our differences come out it's sad when some Christians are primarily known for the things that they're against Maybe we've come across people like this that that claim to be Christians, profess to be Christians, and yet all we know about them are, are all the things that they're against. Some of them good things that they're against, but sometimes comes to the point that they are against other Christians. Instead of being known for loving the gospel, Loving the body of Christ and and wanting to cultivate a spirit of unity within the body. Whether it's the local church body as as we gather in this room or the larger body of Christ within our city and and state and country and and, and around the world. See, our unity in the gospel should win out every day over our differences and secondary issues. Our unity... in the gospel must win out over all of the other secondary differences. You see, there is room in the kingdom of God for people who hold different views on issues such as eschatology, even mode of baptism, church government and polity, style of music, school choices, parenting styles. And many, many other things that we could list. There is room in the kingdom of God for all of us. I think this is the beauty of what God has done. Gathering all of us together in the gospel. We're all different. We all all have different perspectives. We all study the scripture and come to different interpretations. On secondary issues. But there is room in the kingdom of God for all of us. And what God calls us to do is to set those secondary issues aside and just celebrate our unity in the gospel. We don't, we don't have to ignore those differences, but we deal with those difference, differences from a position of unity. And trusting the Spirit, we don't allow those differences to take over. And divide. The gospel is powerful enough to unite us in spite of our differences. Not only do we demonstrate patience by bearing with one another in love, but we do so by eagerly maintaining the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 3. What is important here to note is that we are called simply to maintain that which God has already done. So we have been entrusted as Christians, as a body, we have been entrusted with the gift of unity that God has already accomplished. This might be similar. As I thought about this, I thought about the oaths of office that elected officials take and often, at least the the big ones that I'm most familiar with, it's their oath is to preserve and protect that which they have been entrusted to, with. Their responsibility is not to go out and accomplish something new. It's to preserve that which they have been entrusted with. To, to carry on the tradition of, of those who went before. You see, in our country... Our freedom and our constitution has already been decided. Our leaders take an oath to preserve and protect that. So it is in the church. Our unity has already been done. It's it's been finished. It's been accomplished. And all we are called to do is, by the grace of God, seek to maintain that, preserve that unity. The means by which we maintain unity is by allowing God's Spirit to work in us these qualities, these qualities of humility and gentleness, patience, forbearance. And in doing so, God's Spirit produces peace in our relationships. He produces, he ties it all together, he binds it together in this bond of peace. It's important for us to remember that peace is not simply the absence of conflict. Thereby achieved by simply ignoring anything that might threaten our peace and unity. No, you see, what the gospel does is it allows us to demonstrate effort. Being eager to maintain this enables us to live in a way that understands our differences. We can address our differences. We can live in our differences and yet still be unified, still love one another, still serve each other all as as God's children. Despite the differences we might bring to the table, we are we are one. We are united. And the explanation for all of this again we've seen it in chapters 1 through 3, but then to illustrate that this break between theology and practice isn't quite so neat as we sometimes think, Paul goes right back into theology in verses 4 through 6. And he explains why unity is so important. With this, what some have referred to as a hymn of the early church. When he writes, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So if you're counting that seven times, he uses the word one. So Paul, again, laying a theological basis for our unity, points us to the unity of God. The, the, the character of God. This is a Trinitarian proclamation we see all three persons of the trinity mentioned the spirit the lord and god the father these verses also maybe more importantly show us that there is a limit to unity there there is there is something there is a line which unity does not cross In other words, we do not seek unity at all costs. Instead, our unity is defined by the gospel. Really, this these three verses really describe, in one sense, the gospel at work. If we take and kind of reverse the order that Paul uses here, and we start at the end, we start on verse 6, we get this, this same picture that we've already seen, not only in the earlier part of Ephesians, but all through Scripture. God the Father, who is the sovereign ruler of all things, gave His his Son to be the Savior of those who would be baptized into Him through faith. And then He sent the Spirit to call those to be united into one body. This is the Gospel. This is what God is accomplishing. This triune yet... One God is accomplishing this in the lives of his people. He is working in us to obey this exhortation by which we can further display and demonstrate the unity that he exists in as well. So there is a limit to our unity. Our unity is only along gospel lines. So our our commitment to unity requires discernment on our part. It requires us to understand what the gospel is, who believes the gospel. requires us to understand if, if that professing Christian actually understands the gospel. So we do not seek unity with those that do not believe the gospel. We, we can't have unity, this, this kind of unity, with those who do not believe the gospel. And so now we, we come to an ordinance that, that Jesus instituted, which allows us to come together in unity, to share in this celebration of that which unites us. We celebrate the body of Christ that was broken and his blood that was shed on our behalf. That—that That is the essence of what unites us. That right there. The work of Christ on the cross. And this time of communion is not only a time of celebration and rejoicing, it should be, but it's also a time of Repentance of confession, finding forgiveness for the times when we do not live in humility, when we exercise our pride over others, when we do not exhibit the gentleness That God calls us to. The patience. When we allow. Relatively minor things. Secondary things to come between ourselves. And a brother or sister. This is a a time where we can come and. And find forgiveness for that. This is a place for rejoicing. This table is open to all who believe the gospel, are trusting in Christ as their Savior. You do not have to be a member of our church to join with us. All we require is that you are one who is trusting Christ for your salvation, who has experienced the forgiveness of sin and is demonstrating these behaviors that are consistent with A believer. Repenting of sin when needed. Receiving forgiveness. As needed. And so we come to this time and we will have a moment after I pray of quiet contemplation meditation. We'll have some scripture read. Take that time to meditate on that scripture. Confess sin as, as needed. Deal with God in a way that He is leading you to. And then as we sing, you come and, and we will partake of, of the Lord's table together in this celebration of our unity. Committing ourselves to going from here, living in the strength of the Spirit to cultivate these qualities within us. Thereby further Reflecting the character and holiness of God. And being to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel. Thank you for its simple message that sinners can be rescued from sin through the blood of Christ. Thank you that for many of us in this room, you have... Already done that work of opening our eyes to understand and believe the gospel. And we will gather around this table in a moment. To share in in that celebration. Father, forgive us for when. We live according to our own way. Rather than in humble submission to your leading and your will. Please give us hearts of humility, hearts of repentance. Give us the ability to bear with each other for the sake of the unity of the body. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.